It took us probably eight or nine minutes. That feels like eternity as a busy parent. I had a million other things to do than like to handle this banana situation. But he got to the point where he was like, can you get the banana out of the freezer? I'll eat the broken banana. And I was like, oh my gosh. And then he goes, thanks for helping me with my feelings, mom. Hi, I'm Shelly. And I'm Maria. And you're listening to the Baby Pro Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy and through the first year of your child's life. Every episode, we will discuss and interview experts on all the answers to the questions expectant and new parents want to know, such as creating the perfect birth plan, infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn. And welcome to the show. Hey friends, it's Shelly and Maria is traveling to see family this week, so it is just me, myself, and I. I did want to talk a little bit about a couple of things, but first, our guest this week is Amanda Armstrong, and she is going to be talking to us all about self-regulation and how helping yourself regulate helps your baby regulate as well. But first, I came across an interesting study, and this study reveals that singing to babies, especially lullabies, strengthens bonds and boosts development. And I just thought that this was so cool. And one of the most common sleep cues that a lot of parents will use is singing. So if you are using singing lullabies to your baby as a sleep cue, keep doing it because this stuff is great. Now, the study focused on what they call infant-directed singing, which includes songs that have a melody with an identifiable tempo, pitch, and repetitive elements with or without lyrics. Typically, these songs were lower, slower and at a higher pitch than ordinary songs. Even if parents were singing on a, a regular song that you might hear on your playlist, they would typically slow it down and maybe raise the pitch a little bit when singing it to their babies. So this study was actually a systematic review that included 21 studies. The median sample size in these studies was relatively small at 31 moms and babies. And in almost all the cases in the studies, the parent involved in singing to the baby was the mother of the baby. Some of these studies had as little as four families, uh, mother dyad couples, and some had almost 400. So there was a wide range. And what they found based on body movements, sounds that the baby made, attention, the baby's mood, was that when parents sang to their babies, the babies became calm, they went to sleep, or they were distracted from something that was previously bothering them. And so these type of lullabies or melodies typically reduce the body activity and induce quietness and and resulted in more smiles in some of these studies. And so the bottom line of this systemic review was that singing your baby a lullaby is natural. We all tend to do it. And for a good reason, it does help them regulate. Um, it does help them calm. And it does help you bond with your baby. So keep singing those lullabies. And next I have our question of the week. So this week's question was submitted on Instagram. And the question is, how do I stop my teething to my nine-month-old baby from biting my nipple while breastfeeding? This is a tough one. And I think most parents who breastfeed until their children get start to get teeth have questions about this. The thing to remember is if your baby is breastfeeding the way that they should, they're moving their tongue correctly, they're latching correctly. Teething shouldn't be an issue because their tongue comes forward and covers their lower gum line and protects your nipple against the new teeth coming in. Now, sometimes babies will bite down on the nipple as a way to soothe themselves from the teething pain. And when this happens, our first instinct is to kind of pull the baby off and say, ow, and yell. We want to try to avoid doing that as much as possible. I mean, sometimes you can't just avoid having that reaction. But the problem with that reaction is if you're pulling your baby off your breast because they're biting, it's going to cause more damage to your nipple. And then if you're yelling like, ow, and in pain, for some babies, that can startle them and frighten them. And in some cases, they'll even refuse to nurse for a little bit after. So one of the best responses that helped me when when my babies were teething while I was breastfeeding them is 
if you can, if you can remember to do this, when they bite down, instead of pulling them off the nipple, pull them more into the breast so that their nose and their mouth is completely covered. Then they're going to let go of the nipples so that they can breathe, right? And then you just firmly tell your baby, no biting, firmly, but very gently, and stop nursing your baby for a few minutes. Your baby will learn fairly quickly that if they want to continue to nurse, they can't just bite you. Other things that you can do is make sure that they're comfortable from the teething pain. So I always found that offering a cold teether before they were ready to nurse was helpful. I'm trying to keep them as comfortable as possible. That strategy that I just talked about worked really well with my first two. Now with my last, my son, when I said, oh, we don't bite, he thought my reaction was funny. And so then he would try to purposely bite here and there to get that reaction out of me again and giggle and laugh the whole time. I will say that when he was doing that, he didn't quite bite as hard because it wasn't really an intentional, I'm going to bite down. It was like, what happens when I do this? I want to see that reaction again. So those are some tips that you can try if your baby is teething and therefore biting while feeding. And if you have a question that you'd like Maria and I to address in the podcast, you can message me on Instagram. I'm at Shelly Taft, IBCLC. And next up, we will be speaking with Amanda. This week, we are speaking with Amanda Armstrong all about self-regulation and how that helps your kids to self-regulate too. Amanda is a neuroscience and trauma-informed anxiety and depression coach and founder of Rise As We, a mental health coaching space. Her experience in education has led her to create a unique research-supported and whole human approach to healing through a personalized lens of neuroscience and lifestyle design. From completely personalized coaching to the most comprehensive mental health membership out there, Rise As We offers the programs and support Amanda wishes she would have had on her healing journey. Hi, Amanda. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I love this topic. I could talk all day about it. I know that I often think about how I need to regulate myself and I'm still... It's always a work in progress. Do you feel that that's true? Oh, forever. It's a work in progress, especially because just when you think you figured it out with one kid, the next kid is different and has different needs and also triggers you in different ways. And so you have to kind of up your self-regulation game as a parent because I think for me, there has been nothing more healing than motherhood, but also nothing more triggering than motherhood. 100%. So so you have tell us a little bit about yourself. You have kids yourself and yeah. So I have two. Um, I have a three-year-old little boy and then I actually have a real fresh one. Um, he's about six weeks. Oh so. my goodness. That's a three-year-old funny. and a six-week-old. Yeah. And how is the three-year-old adjusting? Honestly, he's thriving as a big brother. And Aww. I think we did a really good job of providing him like a lot of time and a lot of context for baby brother. And I think three. So little backstory in between, we tried to have a smaller age gap between my first and my second. We actually had four losses. And so that took a little bit of time, but when we ended up doing fertility treatment, cause we just couldn't get answers as to why I continued to miscarry. And so that's what gave us this little ball of joy. Mm-hmm. But I think three years was the perfect age gap for our family, at least because he Cade is the name of my three-year-old. He has so much more ability to like talk and articulate himself. And so I don't feel like there's as much competition between the two because Cade can clearly articulate and we can meet his needs. And so the baby is seen as kind of this fun thing. And I'm breastfeeding, but I'm pumping just enough that like Cade can feed him a bottle every couple days. So he feels like he can participate. And I also just, I think, got really lucky. I have a kid with a pretty helpful disposition. Mm -hmm. And so it's just fun. Can you help get a diaper? Can you help change him? Can you? So any as much as we can include him, but he will tell everybody about his his baby brother and that he's a big brother. And it's been really fun to watch him kind of own that role. We'll see. That may change when uh, Lachlan can crawl and like get to his toys and stuff. But right now, while he's like contained to the place we put him, my son is thrilled and loves being a big brother. <laughs> so it sounds like everything's really just going well for you in the postpartum period. But I know that that can be like 
a really stressful time for a lot of families. And you're kind of like the expert on self-regulation and reducing stress in your life. So have you found that having that background has played a huge part in helping this transition go smoothly? I think it's been absolutely essential. Um, So just so that I know that you do kind of a formal intro, but so I'm a nervous system-based anxiety and depression coach. And so having an understanding of like the things that help our nervous system to feel safe and calm are not only so crucial for like me as a parent to help my kids developing nervous system, but also for myself, like in motherhood, I also, we had a pretty traumatic birth. So mm-hmm. um, I was trying for a VBAC and I had a uterine rupture, mm-hmm. which is like less than 1% yeah, of attempted VBACs. Yeah. It's like, it's a big deal. And the good news is it was kind of the best of a worst case scenario. Myself, the baby, like we made it out um, healthy and well, but it's still a scary thing. And I actually, on my podcast, did an episode basically, you know, what does it look like to be in kind of a, a traumatizing experience, something like that, and to not walk away traumatized? Like, what are the things that we need? And why I think I was able to walk away from pretty extreme birth trauma without holding that trauma in my body. And it was, A, I think the previous regulation work that I've done, right? I came in there with a really regulated baseline. I very intentionally, before I went into labor, like, kept my stress levels down, like did very, you know, a lot of vagal toning practices, lots of breathwork practices, et cetera. But the other two was to create a sense of safety. So what can you do so that you feel safe in the environment that you're in, the people that you're around, et cetera, right? And as parents, that's something we can also give to our kids, right? How do you become that safe space? Is there like a safe space in the house when your kid's absolutely tantruming that you guys can go into together? And then the third, which I think made the biggest difference for me in this like newborn phase this time around was support, right? My first baby was born May or April, April of 2020, right? We were alone. We were all isolated. We didn't have a lot of family support. For this one, my mom was here for almost six weeks. The church that I'm a part of was bringing me meals. I have a neighbor who was checking in with me. And so the transition from one to two has just felt like a dream for me because of how much support I had around me. And when you feel supported, you're ability to self-regulate, it's so much easier. And it just, I had multiple, honestly, I think what made me the most kind of sad during this was that like, I realized that not all mothers have support. Like I had making this transition because I have some friends who really, really went into dark places going from one to two babies, because now you have a toddler and a newborn and you're healing. How do you meet those needs, et cetera. And when you're so overwhelmed, it makes that period so much harder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of parents, you know, they're single parents. They live far away from family. They don't have a lot of friends and it can make it a lot harder. That's one of the first questions I ask families when I'm working with them is, you know, tell me about your support system. Do you have a strong support system? And uh, a lot of times the mom will be like, oh yeah, my husband's off for work for four weeks, which is great. But who's supporting him? (laughs) Who's supporting the family as, as a unit is the question that I've been asked. Yeah. And that is, and there's a lot of research around that too, right? So the access you have to support and also your, your purse, your just your self perception of being supported or part of a community is one of the number one markers for mitigating things like anxiety, depression, trauma, et cetera. It increases our resilience more so than almost any other intervention is just this idea that you feel connected and part of a community and like you have a support system that can kind of take care of you. And it's, it is literally one of the strongest markers of kind of resilience and resilience being our ability to just bounce back from, from hard things and stay regulated as we navigate them. So I want to go back because you said a couple interesting things when you were talking about your experience. And I want to go back to them and have you talk about them in more detail. You said that you were a nervous system coach and then you you mentioned vagus tone. Mm -hmm. So can you explain more about what those, what does it mean to be a nervous system coach versus a different type of coach? And what is vagus tone if if someone out there doesn't know? Yeah. Yeah. So I am a nervous system coach nervous system focused, nervous system based anxiety and depression coach. And so what this means is that I look at anxiety and depression, not as these 
kind of separate diagnoses, not as these things that you're born with that you have to just manage your whole life, but that they are actually symptoms of survival mode. So when we look at our nervous system, right? We kind of have three states of our nervous system. And this applies to both our children and us as adults. We have a state of regulation. This is something called our parasympathetic nervous system. And for those of you who are like, wait, whoa, whoa, even even simpler, like what is a nervous system? Your nervous system is essentially that when we say like mind-body connection, that's what we're talking about. And you have something called your autonomic nervous system, and this controls all of your automatic body functions. So your heart rate, your respiration rate, and it is hardwired for survival. Your nervous system will always prioritize survival over wellness every time. And so we have these kind of three states of our nervous system when we look at it through something called the polyvagal theory, which is something I'm trained in. And we have a state of regulation. So this is when you're feeling calm, you're present, you're in a parasympathetic state. So physiologically, what's happening in your body is everything's working well. Your digestion, your heart rate, your breath rate, and then whenever we sense a threat or there's a stressor in our life, our body's preferred response is activation. So, right, you've all heard of fight, flight, or freeze. This is your fight or flight response. This is when you are priming to take action to do something to fight or to run from that stressor or that threat. And so this is a really activating state and things change in the way that our body works. We get really tunnel visioned. We deprioritize anything that doesn't help us to fight or flee. So our heart rate changes, our breath changes, our blood goes to our extremities. Now, if a stressor or a threat gets too big or it lasts too long, it becomes too overwhelming, then we go into a shutdown state right? So that's where depression lives, right? Anxiety is a really activated thing. We're very hypervigilant. We're overthinking. Our brain runs fast. Our body's running fast. And then we have our shutdown state. And this is where we kind of experience depression and our physiology changes. And when we're so overwhelmed, our body's kind of like either A, we need to reset, we need a break, or what's the point, right? And this is where it disconnects you to decrease the level of pain that you're experiencing in this situation. And so where, how this, what this looks like in, in the work that I do with anxiety and depression is now we say, oh, like maybe this is actually, there's nothing broken about me. There's nothing wrong about me. When I can look at my past lived experience, my current stress load, the current situation that I'm in, like maybe being in a state of activation or shutdown, like actually makes sense. The load that I'm carrying is so heavy. I'm so overstimulated. For my parents, I hear all the time, like I'm so touched out. The mental load is exhausting. And we also kind of, we get to a place where we have default responses. And so for somebody who experienced maybe a lot of like childhood trauma, now as an adult may default to that shutdown state, right? Because Activation is not an option. It's not really an option as a kid to run or fight off your caretaker. So if there is, if it's not a healthy situation, what tends to happen more often is you default to kind of that freeze or shutdown state. And so you just kind of disconnect. Same thing, right? A, a single mom or a stay-at-home parent who is in the home all day with young children doesn't feel like she has a support system right? They feel, they often feel trapped. And so it's like, well, I'm not about to like fight my kid. I'm not going to, I'm not going to leave my kid. And so sometimes that can become a default state too, to a really overwhelmed parent is to just disconnect. And we do that in a ton, a ton of different ways. And there's nothing. And and I think the most beautiful part about understanding parenting through a nervous system lens or anxiety and depression through a nervous system lens is we can strip away any of that like shame, blame, or guilt. Like, of course, you're spending six hours a day scrolling on Instagram and disconnecting. You're so overwhelmed. Your load is so heavy. And like, nobody taught you. Nobody taught you how to manage this in any other way than to disconnect. And I think it takes away this narrative from there's something broken about me to, oh no, like I'm just dysregulated and I I don't have the coping skills to navigate what I'm experiencing right now. Mm-hmm. And for me in my parenting world, this has been crucial because I am not an intuitive, uh, regulated parenter. I 
almost every day, right? My default is to want to yell. It's to want to throw my three-year-old in his room and tell him he can come out when he's calm. Because I have, I would say, probably two really great parents. They were loving. My needs were met. They did the best they could. And my emotional, I was not taught emotional regulation skills as a child. I was often told it's not that big of a deal. I think my emotions were then, or they were placated. It was like, oh, you're going to be upset if you don't get the thing. Here's the thing. Or I was sent to my room and was like, okay, come down when you can be calm. And so as an adult, I have a pretty low threshold for emotional regulation. And we always default to what we know. And what we know is often what we experienced. And so I've had to do a lot of work to get to a place where I can keep myself calm when my toddler can't, because that's really developmentally appropriate for him to not be able to regulate himself. And so much of that is because of my understanding of the nervous system. But occasionally I will lose it. Mm -hmm. I'm totally an imperfect parent like the rest of all of us. But I can walk away from those situations instead of shaming myself and saying like, man, you're such a crappy mom. Like you did this. It's ooh, you're a really dysregulated mom right now. Your stress bucket is super full. So of course you yelled. Mm -hmm. Now, what do you need to do to get back to a place where you can be in control of you so that you can repair this with with your kid? Because that's still your job. Your job as a parent is not to stop your kid from tantruming. Your kid's gonna tantrum. It's your job as a parent is how can you be self-regulated enough to be calm when they can't? And then vagal toning, kind of that other question you asked. So we are our vagus nerve. It is our 10th and our longest cranial nerve. And it is one of the most impactful things for our nervous system when we can learn how to kind of pull its levers. So your vagus nerve, it exits kind of at the base of your skull, out your brainstem. And then it is a nerve that innervates almost all of your main organs. So it goes to your lungs and your heart and your your gut. When we talk about kind of mind-gut connection, we're talking about the vagus nerve. And 80%, I'm going to get a little bit nerdy and sciencey for a second, but I think education's so empowering. Do it, please. Yeah. <laughs> so um, 80% of the nerve fibers of the vagus nerve are parasympathetic fibers, right? So if you remember a little bit ago, I mentioned that your parasympathetic nervous system is activated when we're in that regulated state, that rest and digest, when our body is optimal, but also, right, I say often, your state determines your story. The state that your nervous system is in is going to determine the kinds of thoughts that you're thinking. And so our vagus nerve, 80% of those nerve fibers are parasympathetic. So when we activate our vagus nerve, we are pushing our body towards regulation. We are activating our body's relaxation response. And there are some really simple ways that we can activate our vagus nerve. So The vagus nerve innervates kind of up into like up through your neck near your vocal cords and behind. So if you like kind of turn your head to the side, there is a chunky muscle that kind of starts at the base of your ear and then comes down and attaches at your your collarbone. And so the vagus nerve runs kind of parallel to that near your vocal cords and kind of up into your ear. And so there are a couple manual ways you can activate your vagus nerve. And so you can kind of take your pointer finger and put it in the little valley of your ear, just outside your ear opening and do a couple circles. And you're not trying to like deeply massage, but this ear massage just kind of like moves the skin and is a tactile and manual way that we can activate our vagus nerve. And I'm doing it now on the podcast and I just yawned. So yawning is an indicator that you've gotten kind of a parasympathetic reset. So it's one of the ways your body says like, oh, yep, we get it. We can, we can down we can put pump the brakes a little. Mm-hmm. Same thing if you kind of come down and squeeze or rub this, this neck muscle here. Mm-hmm. Um, things like gargling, humming, or singing, laughter, things that like vibrate our vocal cords can activate the vagus nerve. Exercise, cold exposure, taking like having improving your gut health improves your vagal tone. So vagal tone, think about like muscle tone, right? When you have high muscle tone, we think, oh yeah, you're more fit. Your muscles are healthier low muscle tone, your muscles aren't as strong. Mm -hmm. High vagal tone is, yeah, your vagus nerve is optimally operating. It's really healthy. Low vagal tone is not so much. And so one of the metrics that we have to measure kind of vagus nerve health and vagal tone health is something called heart rate variability. Now, if you have like an aura ring or an Apple watch or a Fitbit, 
Heart rate variability is one of the things that they'll typically give you. And I would avoid anybody to go online and be like, what is an ideal heart rate variability? Because it can vary so much between people. When you are like, yes, I want to improve my vagal tone. or I want to have a nervous system that has more capacity for dysregulation because I want to be a more regulated parent. I don't want to snap at my kids as much. I want to get into the physiology stuff. We're just looking for improvement over time. So wherever your current heart rate variability is, no big deal. You just want improvement over time. So heart rate variability is just, it's measuring kind of the the distance between your heartbeats. And it's one of the most accurate measures we have to say, well, is your vagal tone higher or lower? Is your nervous system more resilient to stress or more susceptible to being stressed? And so what we know is that the higher vagal tone you have, the more resistant to stress you are and the faster you bounce back from stress. And I don't know that there's any skill that I need more as a parent than the ability to rebound from stress quickly. There's no way we avoid stress. Our kids are going to stress us out. Life is going to stress us out. They're going to get sick. We're going to get sick. The microwave is going to go out on us. Like whatever feels stressful in our life, but having not just the psychological resilience to stay in kind of a positive mindset, but actually a physiological resilience to the stress response that happens in our body is so, so important as well. And so the vagus nerve is actually like one of the most like trending wellness topics right now. And we're, which is awesome when with one of the awesome things about social media is like as a trend kind of like takes off there. I think it makes the education more mainstream for everybody, but it also drives some of the behind the scenes research. And so there's a lot of really cool research being done about nervous system, neuroscience, vagus nerve, et cetera, in regards to kind of like self-regulation, nervous system health, mental health, all of it. I love this. And I learned a lot about this, like the polyvagal. I'm actually reading the book, The Polyvagal Theory um, Mm -hmm. right now. It's a little dry, so it's taking me a while to get through it. It is. It's it's hard to get through. There's good stuff in there, but... Yes, there is a lot of good stuff. And I love how they talk about how that vagus nerve integrates into the vocalization and actually helps you when you're looking at your environment, socialize to figure out, okay, is this even a threat? Is this even something I should be? And there's a lot of research around babies' cries and how different pitches of cries can indicate whether they're in a high, they have a high vocal vagal tone or a low vagal tone. Have you heard about that? I haven't. That's really interesting. I did a lot of research around like when I was pregnant with my son, mm-hmm. you know, because essentially when you're pregnant, you, you're you responsible for two nervous systems now because your baby's nervous system is developing in you. They are responding to your body's stress levels and your mm-hmm. self-regulation skills, et cetera. And so I do know that babies can be born with kind of a higher or lower baseline depending on mother's stress levels mm-hmm. during pregnancy, et cetera. And for any mom listening who's like, oh no, like I've ruined my child for life. I was so stressed out during that pregnancy. They were born with low vagal tone. The answer is no, you have not. (laughs) No, you have not. Our nervous system is incredibly plastic. It's Mm -hmm. incredibly malleable. It's incredibly resilient. And so, but maybe, right? And this is where I always, I, I help my clients get regulated so they can access that place of like curiosity through also a lens of self compassion. But maybe if, the baby that was born when you were really stressed out during pregnancy was just kind of a little bit of a more finicky baby, et cetera. Maybe this makes sense. Why? Oh, Mm. interesting. Mm -hmm. And so they might need a little bit more of my patience, of my care, of my example, of my self-regulation in these early developmental years, right? Both of my sons were traumatic birth experiences, right? Those births weren't just traumatic for me. They were also traumatic for these newborn babies, right? My first son, I I went, I started to go septic and he wasn't moving. I have big babies with 90th percentile heads. I'm a small body. Labor wasn't progressing. He was getting stressed out. We had a C-section, but because I started to go septic, I had to be on a bunch of antibiotics and he had to go to the nursery for monitoring, which means guess what? The first two hours of my newborn's life, he was not with his mom. That is as unnatural as it can possibly be for a newborn baby. And you know what? It's what needed to be Mm -hmm. to make sure he was as healthy as possible and I was as healthy as possible. And I carried 
with my first son, I did have a lot of postpartum anxiety and I carried so much guilt over that. Guilt over something I didn't, I didn't control. I didn't really have a say in, right? But I navigated and same thing, same thing happened. My uterus ruptured. I was in no condition to be caring for a baby for the first couple hours. And so he, again, he was in the nursery and dad was there and I went and made sure that I was healthy. But for both my kids, right, it wasn't just my birth trauma. It's also theirs. And so I, and I also know the science that babies who are born via cesarean don't get um, certain kind of boosts to their gut microbiome, their immune system that babies who are birthed through, you know, vaginally do. So again, this isn't for me to feel guilty about. It's just the situation, but this education and this awareness gives me some choices now. So I take extra care with my five-week-old and I have with my three-year-old to give them some extra self-regulation skills because they also experienced early developmental trauma. Actually, the first hours of their life were traumatic. And then I also take a lot of care for their kind of vagal tone and gut health and immune system because they were not born birthed vaginally. And so I know that. And so this is where so much, why I get kind of so nerdy, why I do go into that education is because I think that that can be so empowering when we can take that education and process it through a regulated system and not a system that wants to shame, blame, and guilt us for things out of our control, which I think we just so often do as, as mothers, especially. 100%. And that's something that you can apply to a lot of areas. Like if I'm doing a prenatal consult with a parent and, you know, I want to explain if you have a C-section, it can impact breastfeeding in this way, in this way, and, you know, these kind of more negative ways. That doesn't mean that if you need a C-section, you shouldn't get one. Uh, You know, we're like, we're very grateful to live in an area of the world where we can, and we have access to those life-saving interventions. And it doesn't mean if you end up with a C-section, you should feel guilty about it. But if you go in knowing, okay, if I have a C-section, my milk might be delayed coming in. So I know that I can watch my baby's diapers. I can watch to see how they're feeding at the breast and we can stay ahead of any potential complications that will come up. So it's like, I'm not telling parents this to make them feel bad if they have a C-section, but I'm telling them this, that if they have to have one, because it's going to save their life, of course, these are things that we can look for. Well, and I like, and this comes back to that, that topic of support. Like, I can't tell you how desperately I wish I would have had a you before the birth of my first son right? Because I went into that. I had done a hypnobirthing class because I was like, I know how important like mindset is and relaxing the body, et cetera. But the reality is without, I'm like somebody who looks at those like water births in people's basements. And I'm like, I want that so bad. And that's never going to be my story. It's not. If I had babies a hundred years ago, I would have been the woman to die in childbirth. Mm -hmm. I needed and my babies needed that level of intervention. And there's part of me that like hates that I did, right? I hate Mm -hmm. that I needed that. I don't hate myself for that, but I hate that like I didn't get what I wanted out of this birthing experience. And yet I am choosing very intentionally to write a story that is more helpful than that. That it's Mm -hmm. like, I'm so grateful that we had access to this, but I felt so lost postpartum. I hadn't even fathomed the idea that I could end up in a C-section. Like I knew that other people did, but I wouldn't. Of course, I knew too much about my body. I'd done too much to prepare. I knew all the things. Well, guess what? You still don't control that your baby gets stuck and that you start to go septic, right? Like, And so having had somebody beforehand just say, hey, I know this isn't the plan, but just in case this is how it goes... These are some things to expect. And I'm here for you afterwards to help you navigate it. And so I think that that is such a beautiful gift that you give to parents is this like, hey, here's this pre-consultation and whatever comes up, I want you to know that you have a safe space to come and get answers. Like you don't have to navigate that alone. And so that's, I think, an amazing conversation that you have is like, hey, this isn't the this isn't the the path that we're we're working towards, but if it happens and it needs to happen, it's okay that it does. And here's some things that you just need to put on your radar so that you can navigate this in the way that's best for you, baby, and family. 
Yeah, everything you're saying is really resonating with me. With my third pregnancy, he was he's he was a rainbow baby. So you know when you you're pregnant again, you get really anxious about what's going to happen this time. So I was already anxious then going into the pregnancy, and then I happened to separate from my husband in the pregnancy. So my stress level was so high that entire pregnancy, and the birth was great, but he was a tough baby. He cried all the time. I could not put him down. He he just had a really hard time regulating. And he especially liked to scream from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. every night for like Excellent. three months. And I would, I just Great. remember like, you know, you have those vivid memories that you can almost smell what the smells were. And, uh-huh. and one of those vivid memories for me was sitting at the, on the bed at 2 a.m. And it was just me and him and he had been screaming and screaming and I'm just holding him while he's screaming and I like the tears are just pouring down my face. And he had woken up my second child. She came in to the bed and she just sat up next to us in bed and just started crying with us. So it's just like all three of us just kind of like crying. And I remember learning about like this, you pass the stress onto your baby in utero and the guilt that I had was immense because I'm like, this is why, this is why he screams all the time because I have totally stressed him out. And I remember my mom saying like, well, who, who can go through a separation without being stressed? Yeah. The word how is that in your control? How could have that been possible? If you could go back in time, what would you have done differently that would have made you not as stressed? Like it's not, it's not possible to have no stress. Yeah. And and now he's 13 and he is like the sweetest kid ever. He has no problem regulating. He's so chill and laid back. And I think that part of that is I did like a lot of movements with him. I wore him a lot. I worked on breathing exercise, like once I figured out like breathing exercises. And I talk about with the families I work with all the time, like babies cannot calm themselves down. They are co-regulators, right? They're, they are co-regulators like into mm-hmm. into teenage, like teenagers. Yes. Yeah. Don't even have, they, teenagers can regulate themselves better than a three-year-old can, right? Because these skills layer with development, but also with modeling. And so a 13-year-old who has a parent who modeled self-regulation and emotional regulation, et cetera, is going to be a much better self-regulator at 13 than a 13-year-old who didn't have access to, to those things. But a 13-year-old, even with the perfectly modeled self-regulation skills, still is not in a place where they are developmentally developmentally capable of being a perfect self-regulator. I mean, we mm. never get to a point where we can perfectly self-regulate, even as adults, but they still have a developing brain that is very emotional. I remember me at 13, holy heck, I don't know how my parents made it through, but <laughs> if I if a friend like didn't call me back, it was like it was the end of the world. It I was I was not a super chill teenager. Mm-hmm. It was a mortal wound. It was a rejection, right? And that it's, I think teenagers can be especially hard because as parents, we see them as being kind of like pre-adult in some ways, right? We expect them to be able to regulate their emotions in the way that an adult is. And yet we understand that they aren't adults yet, but we put adult expectations on them developmentally in a lot of ways, right? Because we're like, well, you're not three, but you're acting like a three-year-old. Like how often do we tell teenagers, like you're acting like a child. Like they are in very many ways in the way that their brain is still developing, still a child. And so I think one of the best things that we can remember as parents is like, no matter the age of our child, it is our job to be able to remain calm when they can't. Right. And if we can't, it is our job to walk away for a moment get our crap together in whatever Mm -hmm. way we can to be able to come back as infrequently as possible. And we don't want to invalidate their experience, right? Because even though a friend not calling you back, right? Or my kid's broken banana, the level of meltdown that happens for a three-year-old when their banana breaks Mm -hmm. is unreal. And I, Every time I just want to be like, oh my gosh, like this doesn't matter. Eat the banana. But the thing is to him, it does. 
To him, it feels really big. To me at 13, that friend not calling me back felt like total rejection. And so to be able to show up and even just say, I can tell this is really hard for you. You don't have to sit there and be like, this is a hard thing because you as a parent don't think a broken banana is a hard thing, right? So don't lie. But you can, you can say, I see this is really hard for you. I just want you to know that I'm here for you. What would you like this to look like? Do you want to play walrus with your bananas? Right? Or again, remember how I said I was raised? My default to help my kid feel better is, well, there's like seven other bananas on the counter. Do you know how easy it is for me just to be like, well, here's another banana? Right? But what I, and sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't have the capacity for anything else. I'm like, (laughs) here's another mother trucking banana, dude. (laughs) But what I'm trying to do, because I'm realizing that my default pattern is to placate, is to kind of fix the thing that's making him upset. But every time I fix the thing that makes him upset, I rob him of an opportunity to build capacity for disappointment, to build capacity for frustration. And we had a huge win just last week over a broken banana, you know, where I just kept saying, you know, we can put it in the freezer and we can make ice cream out of it later or put it in a smoothie. But if you want a banana, this right now, this is the banana that you're you're gonna eat. And he saw the bananas on the counter and he was like, I want another one. Right. Any parent is like, Yeah, we know we've been there. But I just stayed calm and I continued to repeat myself, like, if you want a banana, this is the banana. And it's still yummy in two pieces. Do you want me to put it in the freezer? And he wanted me to put it in the freezer. So I put it in the freezer. But he thought that by putting it in the freezer, he would then get another banana. And I was like, nope. If you want a banana, that's the banana that that we're going to eat. And it took us probably eight or nine minutes. That feels like eternity as a busy parent. I had a million other things to do than like to handle this banana situation. But he got to the point where he was like, can you get the banana out of the freezer? I'll eat the broken banana. And I was like, oh my gosh. And then he goes, thanks for helping me with my feelings, mom. Oh my gosh, I feel like I won a trophy. Right? Because, <laughs> like it's all worth it. It's all right? worth it. <laughs> yeah. Because what happened in that situation was I basically just said, it's okay to be mad about this. And I'm here for you. But also, this is this is it. Like if you want the banana, you're gonna eat the broken banana. And his little three-year-old brain, it took a while to for him to figure out, right? That like, okay, I either don't have the banana or I have the broken banana. And guess what? Three days later, his banana broke. And he looked at me and he goes, Broken bananas are yummy too, mom. No. And so this is what happens when we can help our children kind of ride out that full stress cycle in situations. And so when you think about a stress cycle becoming dysregulated, right? We're regulated and then something that upsets us, a stressor, a threat comes in and we activate. And then that stressor, that situation that passes and we regulate. But what happens a lot of times with kids when we either placate, right? Or we send them to their room by themselves to, you know, calm down. They don't calm down, they shut down. And it's okay if sometimes you need to have your kid there and you there because if your kid isn't in the room by themselves, you're gonna yell or you're gonna hit or you're gonna, right? If you're trying to break patterns of dysregulation yourself, look, we're trying to take baby steps. There's there's no way that I've never walked out of my kid's room and left him there screaming by himself. You bet I have, because it was more important to me to give him a moment alone than for me to be the parent that screamed back. Mm-hmm. And everything in me, if I didn't step outside, I'm getting better at self-regulating in the room with him. Yeah. But sometimes I can't. And I have to leave the room to self-regulate so that I can then show back up into that room mm-hmm. and not be the parent that screams back. And so when we can get them to a place of calm and then say, hey, let's talk about it. You were upset and now you feel better. That becomes a situation for them that now is manageable. And almost every single time I've been able to ride the wave and it's inconvenient and it's frustrating and it takes time, but I'm able to ride the full wave of situation to resolve and then to repair where he's like, can I have a hug, mom? Like, I feel my feelings are small now, right? We have our own unique family language as we go through this. 
the next time the same or a similar situation happens, sometimes there's still a tantrum, but it went from 15 minutes to five. And if we can do the same process with the five, it's then two. And by the next time, it's like a Mm non-issue. And I've seen that pattern over and over and over again. When I can self-regulate enough that he can just go through that process. And I'm finding the balance of how to, my kind of motto in parenting right now has been firm, but kind. Firm, but kind. We don't hit the door when we're angry. That's been his new thing is throwing his body against his bedroom door. And so, or we don't hit mom. I won't let you hit me. So if you can't keep your hands to yourself, I will leave the room. And I'll sit outside the door so you know that I'm there, but it's my job to protect my body, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so figuring, same thing, firm but kind. I'm not going to give you another banana. If you want the banana, this is it. And I can only be firm and kind at the same time when I have the capacity myself to be a self-regulated adult and to not expect my child to be self-regulating because it's not possible. It's not possible for them. So it's so hard if you are a parent that was never taught those skills growing up. So you're trying to learn them at the same time that you're trying to teach your child about them and model them for your child or your baby. And and I just really feel for parents. And that is something that, you know, I grew up in a household that yells. Same. Mm-hmm. Yellers. And it, 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 it keeps me, and I still yell sometimes, but I'm a lot better than I used to be. But and I, that's, that's, I think what I need all of your listeners to hear is like, you're doing so much better than you think, because if you're listening to a podcast like yours or podcasts like mine, it means that you're seeking answers. It means that you are not afraid to be the parent who's like, I try hard at parenting. Like, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I haven't figured it out, but I'm also proud that I'm trying and I'm trying to break those patterns. I'm trying to learn these things. And it's okay that you can't do it on your own, right? That's why you exist. That's why there's parenting coaches. That's why I exist, right? For anxiety and depression. So much of what comes up with if the clients that we work with are parents is regulated parenting, right? So much of why I think mothers or fathers struggle with anxiety. Again, if we look at it through this nervous system lens, because you have a billion stressors being added to your nervous system in your role as a parent on top of paying the bills and working and your own friendships and family dramas and et cetera. And so it's like, of course, like that all adds to the load on your nervous system and these skills that help you to regulate your nervous system that also help you to kind of reclaim your life from anxiety and depression also help you to step into being a more self-regulated parent and to become the, that give you the capacity to be a more present parent and authentic parent for your children, which is like the greatest, I tell people, the greatest gift you can give your kids is your own regulated nervous system. And if you don't know how to do that, again, of course you don't. Of course you don't. It's not because you suck. It's not because of any personal failure. It's simply because nobody taught you how. And if you need help in being taught how, there's no shame in that. If I went to a tennis court right now, it would be embarrassing because no one's taught me how. But I would never feel like the shame or guilt around sucking at tennis that I do sometimes at sucking at not yelling at my kid. But it's still a skill and nobody taught me how. And the same way I wouldn't have shame about hiring a tennis coach. I cannot emphasize enough, like this isn't just because this is this is what you do and what I do, but the impact that hiring somebody to help me learn how to do these skills was impactful. And not everybody has the financial resources to hire. I understand that too. But again, that's why you do what you do. People don't realize how much it takes to put a quality podcast out into the world. <laughs> it's a lot of work, but you and I are so passionate about not just providing this information to people who pay us, but putting this information out in the world for everybody completely free of charge because you and I are those parents that at many points in our life, we didn't have the financial resources to invest in getting this support. And so, and, and I, I'm kind of speaking speaking for you here. I don't know your full story, but at least for myself, right? And so there's nothing that I teach behind a paywall that I won't teach for free on my podcast about self-regulation and nervous system regulation that I won't give to you and your listeners for free here because these skills and these tools not only change our lives, 
but they change our children's lives and then their kids' lives. And because each generation, we're just getting a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. And like, so there's no room for, you're going to feel a little guilt because we're moms, right? But don't allow that to to be the consuming emotion because the truth is you need self-compassion as a parent because damn, this is really hard. This is really, really hard. And you're Especially doing so much better. Yeah, especially in the US where we are not supported by our systems mm-hmm. at all. And I just like, I, I can teach all the self-regulation, like tangible skills in the world. But I think the biggest takeaway from this conversation is just like, you have to have self-compassion. You're not a bad parent. You are a dysregulated one. And you're not dysregulated because you suck. You're dysregulated because nobody taught you how. And unfortunately... It is your job now to teach you how. Nobody else as an adult is going to come in and teach you how. And that's the best gift that you can give your kid. Your kid doesn't need a perfect parent. Your kid needs a trying parent. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're a trying parent. (laughs) Right. Like full stop. (laughs) You had mentioned one already of rubbing your ear. Uh Uh-huh. Are there other like quick things that parents can do like that? to lower their stress level. I personally love breathing exercises. During periods of stress, I'll do like a 4474 or box breathing. And I feel like that that's helpful. Um, so I was just wondering what tips you have. Yeah. So to speak to the breathing really quick, because I know you're at least going to have one listener who's like, if anybody tells me to take a mother trucking deep breath when I'm feeling angry one more time, it doesn't work for me. And again, I'm going to get nerdy and sciencey really quick and tell you why. So breathwork is one of the most powerful levers you can pull to downregulate your system, no doubt. And it's not always the most appropriate first place. When you're angry, when you're anxious, when you are on the edge, right, your body's in a really activated state. And if you try to take a really slow, deep breath, your nervous system is basically going to flip you the middle finger. <laughs> it's going to flip you the bird and basically be like, you don't get it. There's a tiger in the room right now because your body doesn't know the difference between a screaming child and a tiger. It just knows that it's activated. Our stress response is universal. You don't get it and it's going to reinforce your need to stay dysregulated. So when you are like at your peak, like you're about to yell, you're about to hit, you're about to scream, like you're about to have a panic attack, whatever it is for you, I would not recommend breath work. I actually would recommend movement of some sort. Mm. So leave the room, go sit outside or walk outside really quickly, come outside. And actually there's something called somatic shaking. So if you just like shake your hands, like you're flicking water off your hands or wiggle, that helps to discharge some of this activated energy in our body. I'll sometimes just stand outside a door. I'll do a quick shake and then I'll sway, swaying side to side. Think of how you sue the baby. And at Mm -hmm. one point you were a baby and your body has body-based memory that this repetitive swaying movement is soothing. And so, so those are all things that you can do. If you are feeling really activated, honor the fact that your body is in a mobilized state and ask it to move. Another thing you can do, right? An activated state is an intense state. So you can kind of meet your body in that intensity as well. And so that can look like temperature. What some of my clients will do is they will go grab an ice cube and they'll hold it in their hand. It's really uncomfortable to hold an ice cube in your hand for 30 to 60 seconds. And that intensity of that cold sensation can kind of help to like pull you out of the intensity inside your body because there's an intensity outside your body. When it comes to activating your vagus nerve, if you take a cold pack and you put it kind of on this neck area, either kind of the back of your neck or the front, that can also activate the vagus nerve. And so cold is something, especially for parents that are at home, can be really helpful because it's really accessible. We have freezers right there in most of our homes. So holding an ice cube, splashing cold water on your face, one of the like research-supported ways to activate the vagus nerve is called a face plunge. So you just get a big salad bowl, fill it with ice water, big breath, put your face in, five, 15 seconds, come back up, do that one or two times. That can really take the edge off, but I don't know any mom who's going to have a kid tantruming in a room who's going to fill a salad bowl with, you know, but but a mom could go grab ice. And so if you're feeling really activated, a way to kind of self-regulate is honor that movement and that mobilized state, 
step outside or I'll sometimes kind of stand up in my kid's room and sway. Like if you could watch my nanny cam, you'll see if my kid is by the door, which he's always by the door because he always wants out when he's like losing his mind. I am on the either sitting on the bed, kind of swaying back and forth. You'll sometimes see me doing that ear or neck massage while I'm trying to breathe. Or if it's getting kind of too big before I have to exit the premises, I'll stand up. And then he gets mad because I'm standing up because he didn't control my movement because he's three and a monster. But I'll, I'll stand up and I'll sway. And I'm like, if mommy's going to stay in the room, like she's taking care of her feelings right now. And and I just, I, I very calmly just tell him, you know, I've got to take care of my feelings. I'm feeling frustrated. Um, So those are all things that you can try. And then breath work, I found when I can catch my activation earlier, that is definitely probably my favorite tool as well. And so, and I find that like the four, seven, eight or box breathing for me, I'm like too complicated, too much. So either deep, slow breaths or an extended exhale breath. And so where you just make your exhale longer than your inhale and that, what that physiologically does for your body is that longer exhale triggers your relaxation response a little bit. And so if you can catch yourself kind of getting worked up before you're at a 10, I think that a few deep breaths are really helpful. And then the last kind of tangible tool that I'll give, again, my specialty is like really working with our body's physiology. And when we can shift our physiology, our brain follows all the time. The only reason why anxiety is such an overthinking is seen as kind of an overthinking disorder is because our body is super activated. Our brain has to overthink to prepare for everything. If you, you will never be able to solve an overthinking problem with changing your thoughts any more than you're going to be able to solve an overdrinking problem by changing your drink, right? You have to come to the root and the root's always in the body. So one of the things that happens when we're in that activated state is our pupils dilate and we get really tunnel visioned. And so I work with clients on something called color spotting. So basically you just choose a color. So let's say my client's color is orange. When they would feel themselves getting really activated, they would look around the room and count or name all of the orange things that they can find. And what you're doing when you do that is you're taking literal tunnel visual vision that you've gotten. And when you look around the room, you're you're expanding your vision field, which again, signals to your nervous system that we're more safe. When we scan our environment, it's a safety cue and it helps us to, to kind of rev down that activation. And it opens up our peripheral vision because we're looking for something specific and it kind of distracts from that intensity. And so I think just knowing, and I will say too, a lot of times parents won't catch themselves in activation they've been scrolling on Instagram for 45 minutes, right? They're in full-on shutdown because they're touched out, they're overstimulated, or their kid has been kind of yelling for who knows how long and they're just cluing into the yelling. And then they're like, oh, I'm guilty. How long has my baby been crying? And I'm just now hearing it because I was on freaking Instagram. Like, what's my problem, right? So again, through this nervous system lens, when you're in that shutdown state, what you need is to kind of judge your nervous system. What you need is to bring in movement. Now, the worst advice I think you can give somebody who's truly struggling with depression is to go exercise. And I don't say that because exercise doesn't help depression. Exercise does help depression. There's a ton of research for that. But if you've ever been somebody who can't get out of bed in the morning, telling them they need to go exercise, they know. And if they could, they would, but they can't. And so again, the same way that when you're activated, you meet yourself in that activation, but you need to calm down. When you're shut down, you meet yourself in that low state, but you need to bring yourself back up. And so that's where I find that just changing the environment. Can you put the phone down and just go get yourself a glass of water? Can you take your crying baby from the couch to the porch, right? That moving, getting into a different environment can be the thing that kind of reverses that shutdown spiral as well. Yeah, absolutely. I remember sitting on a yoga ball with my son when I was stressed out and he was crying and just holding him and we would both just gently bounce. And that was one of the few things that would work. He'd calm down. I'd calm Mm -hmm. down. 
And and also the the porch trick I would teach in my newborn care classes. Like if your baby's really upset and crying, try stepping outside with your baby, even if it's a little chilly out because that change in temperature just seems to like, oh, what's going on? And they well, and sunlight is incredibly yeah. beneficial for both babies yeah. and parents when it comes mm-hmm. to self-regulation. So these are things that you can even do with babies who can't talk yet and can't understand, you know some of the vocalizations that you would do with a to- like a toddler. Mm-hmm. But you can use rhythmic movement. You can use that change in temperature and environment. Because it all impacts their physiology. Stress mm-hmm. response, self-regulation all happens in the body long before we get to any kind of regulation of the mind. And I think if you're a parent out there that has been working on this, has recognized that you were never taught to manage your emotions and are now trying to break that cycle to change the generations going forward, give yourself all the credit that you're due. <laughs> Be gentle with yourself, treat yourself to something nice because it's a it's a tough job and it's a big job, but it's an important one. Yeah, absolutely. So where can families find you if they want to connect with you and learn more about you? Yeah. So I have a podcast. It is called Regulate and Rewire, an anxiety and depression podcast. And then on both Instagram and TikTok. Instagram is by far kind of my default platform. That's where I do a lot of education. That's where I show up. You get to know me. My handle is Amanda on the Rise. And then my mental health practice is Rise as We. And so if you go to riseaswe.com, you can learn a little bit about our one-on-one anxiety and depression coaching. I have a monthly mental health and nervous system healing space membership. And so those are kind of the three places I am. My podcast, Instagram mostly, and my website as well. Amazing. And I will link to those all in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you so much, Amanda, for joining us today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us this week on the Baby Pro Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, ShellyTaftIBCLC.com, where you can check out more options for support through pregnancy and beyond, including the Baby Pro Bistro, our parenting community. You can also follow us on social media at ShellyTaftIBCLC on Instagram. If you love the show, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes to help our episodes reach more parents like you. Thanks for listening.